Hey everybody, welcome to the Deuce Rethread on the DVR Podcasting Network. Check us out at dvrpodcast.com. My name is Mike, I am a part of DVR, I cover Game of Thrones, and we cover Leftovers, and uh, what else, a bunch of other shit, some of it's not actually on HBO. But today, we are covering The Deuce, this is our first episode uh, covering the new David Simon and George Pelicano show on HBO, and I am joined today by Jason Bailey. Let me tell you a little bit about Jason Bailey. Oh, shit. <laughs> uh, Jason is a good friend of mine. I've been watching movies with him for 25 years, and he is now the film editor at Flavor Wire, and he is also the author of the... What do you call that? The um, the official 20th it's official. anniversary? It's the official authorized companion. Authorized. That's authorized the word I was is looking big. Yeah, for. yeah, yeah. Yeah, 20th took, took anniversary. Took a lot of trouble to get that authorization, my friend. <laughs> Pulp fiction book yeah. that is big and beautiful and spectacular and also the author of a book covering every Woody Allen movie uh, uh up to when it was published up at to least when it was published, which yeah. will make you want to watch Woody Allen movies more than anything else. Uh also the author of a spectacular Richard Pryor book called American Id, that is my favorite piece of celebrity writing that I've ever read. Second only to, uh, and I have to say it, you know, second only to Klosterman's Britney Spears piece. I'll take that. I'll 100% take that. That's yeah. a classic yeah. piece of, but right, be, right, right, and I mean close right up <laughs> on it, is Richard Pryor, American right. Id. Right. Uh, you've also made a bunch of awesome movies. Jason is gonna uh, do the deuce with me. So yeah, hi. We've got we've gone through so many different like little phrases. Do the deuce, mm-hmm. drop the deuce. Yeah. None of them really work. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, walk, walk the deuce. We're walk gonna walk the deuce. The deuce. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Uh, do a better job of introducing yourself than I just did. No, that's fine. That's fine. I hi, hello. I'm very excited about this new television series. Uh, about a a time in New York that I am fascinated by, about a time in film that I'm fascinated by, about a time in porn that I'm fascinated by, and featuring a whole lot of creative people whose work I'm uh, always interested in. So thank you for the invite, and uh, I'm looking forward to to doing this thing. It's frankly, it, more than anything, it's it it will just ensure that I actually watch the damn show in a timely fashion, <laughs> which is like not, you know, I have two young children and a job where I watch movies, so my television my television viewing really is what took the biggest hit when the children arrived. It yeah. was like this is just I I don't do this for a living, so this shit's just going to have to wait. Uh I'm on I just watched episode five of Twin Peaks, The Return, if that tells you uh, okay. how far behind I am on television at the moment. <laughs> but I also just watched episode one of The Deuce, so we're there in good you go. shape. I'm in good there shape. There you go. We are actually, uh, due to Jason's uh, position as a proper film reviewer and not just like a closet podcast nerd like the rest (laughs) of us uh we actually have all of the episodes of the deuce ahead of time and so we are doing basically like a pre-watch which allows us to release the podcast as the episode is airing so you know we get our stuff right out of the gate um but it also means that we are doing it fresh we are watching it together and not 
reading everybody's shitty attitude on Twitter, <laughs> and we don't know, you know, exactly what has hit for the the new Deuce fan community and and what didn't work. So we're really coming at this like strictly from our own space, which I think is actually going to be really interesting. Coming at it strictly from our own space is a nice way to put it. Um, doing this from inside a bubble is a less nice way to put it but I, <laughs> I and I'm, I'm I'm sure a way that others could put it but no I I really do like the idea of and I was sort of surprised you know often uh even HBO uh for those in the critical community will you know release like a handful of episodes from a season for early review and preview um the average, I think, like the first four is usually what drops. Like, I, I, I don't do a lot of television recap and review, but uh, I have done some, especially before we had a proper TV editor at Flavorwire. So, like, True Detective Season 1, they sent us the first four episodes. Right. Um, I hired a freelancer to do Insecure this season. They sent us the first four episodes. So when I just, I, I put in the inquiry about the deuce uh, I, with the idea of both doing this podcast and recapping it, and then they just sent me this link with like the entire season. And I was like, well, <laughs> thanks. Okay. I'll take it. I guess we're going to watch the whole thing in advance. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So uh, if anyone actually cares about our process, uh, the first, we're doing, the, we're watching the first four uh, before the first episode airs, right, and recording immediately thereafter each one, right, and then doing uh, the 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 back half of the season uh, around the time that the second episode will air. So yep. we'll have heard what you guys thought of the pilot by the time we're doing the back half of this podcast. So sorry, <laughs> it's not that we don't care. It's just super easier this way. And it's all well, yeah. And it's also uh, it'll be you know we'll have some time to reflect during the the actual season once mm-hmm. it is airing. I will be doing additional episodes with other kind of experts uh, in various aspects of the field, shall we say? <laughs> yeah. um, and then also you know we'll be running some kind of little interview clips and stuff. So we'll be able to kind of react to the the community reaction as it's happening. So we're I, I think we're actually it's an interesting thing to kind of be able to do both. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to just take it in purely as a form of art and then also take it in as a kind of community As a cultural experience. happening. Yeah. As a cultural happening, sure. right? Much better way. Sure. Um, so uh, why do we give a shit about this show? Like, have you ever heard of this guy, Simon? <laughs> like, did they just pull this Pelicanos out of a bar somewhere? I, know. I don't I know. know what's going on You here. know that there's this content maw to be filled now. <laughs> Everybody right. gets a fucking television <laughs> show, I guess. There you go. No, it was when they announced this show, however long ago it was, over a year ago now, I I sort of marveled at their ability to make a television program that seemed hyper-targeted specifically at me. (laughs) Like, every element of this thing is exciting to me. It's like, oh, it's a new Simon show with Pelicanos again, and it's this cast, and it's about porn in the 70s, which is like one of my sort of fascinations and has been for a good good long while i guess well it's okay so if you okay so if you study movies and you like movies and you're not rex shit ass reed then (laughs) you learn fairly early about the kind of you know um the new hollywood 
mm-hmm. right? You, yep. you you find out fairly early about this movement and how it changed movies and how the, the studio heads were just kind of confused and didn't know right. what was going to make money. So there were opportunities for people who wouldn't necessarily have them in the studio system. And thus we get basically all the great movies of the 70s, right? right? So this is the short version of that yes. story. Okay, so now once you've read a couple of books and yeah. you know, you've know you've imbibed this version of the story... You start to find out that that once you get a little deeper into that, that things start to get uglier and weirder and much nakeder. Right. Right. But it's coming from this in in a lot of ways. And even there are some of the same people who are working on these movies. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you start to find out more about, you know, I mean, on, I guess the more artistic end of that is like the John Waters stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And like the, um, uh, what, um, why can't I remember his name? The guy who titty shaking in the desert. That <laughs> 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 Ebert wrote a movie for earlier. Russ on. Meyer. Thank you, Russ Meyer. <laughs> Sorry. So that's the, the best. <laughs> that's the best description of the Russ Meyer oeuvre I've ever heard. Okay. There we go. We're already coming right. out with some good So yeah, stuff. so the idea that like that that while, you know, New Hollywood and the and the sort of film school brats were taking over the studio system, that there were also, you know, that the, there were not only also interesting innovations happening in genre and exploitation film, but that a lot of those guys came up in the iteration of exploitation and genre that was happening in the late 60s under Corman and guys like that. Right. Um, and then that also the same sort of exploration and experimentation that was happening in mainstream cinema in the 70s was happening in genre, in ex- exploitation movie, and even in porn. Right. Um, and that is sort you're right that it is sort of a, I have never really thought of it in those terms, but it is a sort of progression of um, education when you're becoming kind of a film nerd of uh, really of descending levels of reputability. (laughs) Yes. That first, you know, about, you know, Bogdanovich and Scorsese and, you know, Coppola and these guys. And then you start to find out about the, you know, John Carpenter's and, and De Palma's and the sorts, those, and you know, and then by the, you know, and if you love film enough and if you're fascinated by this history enough, then yes, pretty soon you're going to make your way to, you know, to deep throat and the devil and Miss Jones and the opening (laughs) of Misty Beethoven. Um, because there was, there was a a freedom and a, 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 uh, an experimentation and, um, a fluidity that was happening all, all the way down the line. And also a, a way in which there will always be frustrated artists and filmmakers who can't catch a break and who make whatever movie they can make. Right. And there was a moment where some of them were making porn. (laughs) Right. Anyway. So now, so, so this is something that, you know, you and I have been talking about and reading about and interested in watching these movies for a long time. And now here, it seems like we kind of get the other side of that store like a dramatization of the other mm-hmm. end of that right mm-hmm. this is one thing that like i mean there's a lot to be excited about here but just in terms of what we know of the story right like i am fascinated by the idea of seeing how that genre that how that thing industry happened how that industry happened yeah. and part of what is so fascinating about it to me is that it seems like it was this place where you had 
a a mixing of of arts film school like you know of of that type of community with legit prostitutes right and, right and, and the mob and the mob <laughs> right yeah and and yeah. you know and when I say prostitutes prostitute covers you know I mean people who were dance vaudeville even mm-hmm. at kind of right early burlesque, on burlesque yeah, yeah, right you yeah. know and and then maybe they've gotten a little older yep. or maybe the thing that they did isn't fashionable anymore <laughs> or there's a, a lot of yeah. different ways that you could land yeah. in this place where these you know yeah you end up liberalizing your sense of of what you do for a living totally and then by the time it start the, you have this kind of sexual reawakening in the country and it starts to seem like this is okay mm-hmm. for the series. Um, but the sort of weird moment um, as a movie nerd where you're suddenly watching porn not to jerk off, <laughs> but because it's interesting, because you've, you've heard some things and read some things. And for me, that moment started with Boogie Nights. I think for a fair amount of people, it does. Right. You know, right. that this is this tremendously uh, engaging and energetic and entertaining and artful movie about people who made dirty movies in the 70s. Yeah. And the sort of, and, and the way, and first of all, that, that it's, a ter- it's a terrific narrative, but that also like really, with a couple of notable exceptions, which we'll, we'll get to, I'm sure, eventually, but that it pretty snugly encapsulates that story, that history. It's a fictional, much as the deuce is, it's fictionalized, but it's telling the story of, of this movement and this moment fairly closely. It's fun and it's fast and Heather Graham's naked and all of these things. Um, but then it's also like, wait, this was like a real, you know, there were people who were trying to make real porno, especially if you're our age and came of an age where that moment had passed right. and people weren't trying to make real well, movies. And for as long as I can remember porn, the, the highest pretension of a porno pornography maker is yeah. that it not be, vi- that it be visually somewhat contemporary. Yeah. yeah you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like a decent, a decent lighting. Yeah. At this point, like if you're shooting it on a camera that has a lens on it. Yeah. Like you are a fucking artist. Yes. Right. Yeah. But there was a time when right. people who were making this thought of it as a potentially transcendent thing, mm-hmm. the way every artist in their wildest dreams thinks of their own art. Yeah. And that just doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. No, big time. And there, and, and it was, but it was like a a moment where guys like Burt Reynolds and Boogie Nights were a thing and there were a handful of them. Um, and so that movie sort of piqued my interest in that. And then really the Paul Thomas Anderson's audio commentary on that DVD, which, You've been making this particular recommendation for a long time. It's one of the great <laughs> audio commentaries. Yeah, right, it really right. is. And one that I listened to a lot because I w- uh, around the time that movie came out on DVD, I was working like a menial like fucking janitor job or something. And I would put audio commentaries onto cassette tapes and listen to them like they were audio books. Because <laughs> I was learning. I was like yes. hungry for, you know. Yes. Um, and there wasn't such a thing as podcasts. There yet. wasn't. There were there weren't <laughs> podcasts. Right. I didn't have an iPod to put them on. You right. know, I just like, and that's a two and a half hour thing. Like I could kill the better part of a shift listening to Paul Thomas Anderson talk about Boogie Nights again. And I did that frequently. Right. But he talks a lot in that movie or in that commentary about coming of age as a kid um, in the valley. Yeah. And 
and being near it and not realizing it. Yeah. And then discovering how much of it, you know, coming into porn as a kid looking at porn and then realizing, holy shit, like there are houses on the next block where they're shooting these movies right. and I'm just walking right by and I have no idea, right. you know? Right. And that, I think that particular sensation is part of why Boogie Nights is such a special movie. The idea that this is happening in these people's homes and homes are where families live. Right. You know, right. but he talks a lot in that track about sort of like discovering, because he because he's a little bit older than us, so as he was discovering porn in like the early 80s and starting to watch it, those were the movies that were on those VHS tapes. Ah, right. So he right. so he's watching, you know, Radley Metzger movies and Bob Chen movies and you know, he's he's uh that's his first exposure to this stuff. Right. Because the VHS filming of those uh, that hadn't quite they were re releasing old movies yeah. on vhs as they well as making quite, new ones right you know there was that you know the as is covered quite elegantly in boogie nights and the shift very succinctly in that scene yeah. you know with philip baker hall and the yep. those young kids yep um so, so that was sort of that movie and that commentary track were sort of where i was like oh there's an actual history of porn and there are stories of people who made it and then that interest was was highly stoked by the book The Other Hollywood, mm -hmm. which is an oral history, haha, -ha, of porn <laughs> um, that came out, I want to say 2003, 2004. And like, if there's a recommended reading list for The Deuce and for this podcast, The Other Hollywood is at the top of it. Right. Um, it's a, a fascinating book. It's a, it's a complex and complete, almost complete book. Um, that really like starts before even the deuce does and walks through this period like in meticulous detail and talks to everybody who's still alive right. at that time who was a part of that and and sort of gets into all of the nooks and crannies that that based on the the, the first episode that we've seen this series is going to, to dwell in as well um, so that's a great book uh, Sleazoid Express by uh, Bill Landis and Michelle Clifford is a great book in terms of what the deuce was, mm -hmm. uh, the literally the geography of mm -hmm. the deuce of the theaters. You know, it's in terms of the movies, it's as much about sort of like exploitation movies and and roughies and softcore as it is about the hardcore stuff because it all played on the deuce. Mm -hmm. um, but it's very much about what put that block or two into the place that it's at as we're coming into this series. Well, you made a very interesting point too when we were watching it that you know, they're still showing second run mm -hmm. sh movies that, there at that point. And so we're kind of in in terms of the window of this show in the wholesome period, right? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> I mean, and to be clear, there were theaters that maintained that there were by by the time the deuce had, the, the period of the deuce had sort of come to an end in the you know, mid 90s or so. There were still a, a, a theater or two hanging on that were still second-run houses. Mm -hmm. They were running them in like a two or three all-day marathon sort of thing, the way that all the grind houses did. But the, that you know that they were still showing real movies there mm -hmm. at the time we're coming in. That's mostly what they're showing. Um, you know, again with the exception of the occasional sort of like soft core. You know, there were and and that's sort of a transition that happened through the '70s, from what I understand that more and more of those theaters just sort of 
succumbed to what, you know, to what audiences wanted to see and to the product that was out there and to what brought people in um, and to pay that ticket at the beginning of the day and sleep and shoot up and jerk off and do whatever they were going to do in that seat for the entirety of the day. Well, this scene, it also starts before Miller v. Georgia, which was the the um, obscenity case mm-hmm. that ended up opening up a lot of the, you know, the rules right. as far as that stuff goes and, and making it so local jurisdictions could decide, right. you know, because what offends in Utah might not offend in New York City, and right. So, right? And so that's, then you get that on top of corruption scandals in the NYPD and you have budget cuts and so they're not hiring new cops and so... Right. You have, excuse me, all these things kind of happening at once that lead to this moment where they just kind of... Where they can put porn in a theater. Where they can can make a feature-length pornographic film, put it in a theater, put the title on the marquee. Right. Um, As opposed to, you know, when hardcore was was predominantly confined to loops that you saw in a peep show booth. Right. Um, or if you were rich, watched in the privacy of your own home. Right. Okay, so this is the world we're living in here. Yeah. (laughs) From our perspective, there's many other things going on. If you and I had spent more time pimping, we probably would have (laughs) talked more about that aspect of it. Yeah, 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 exactly. This is really the thing that, you know, that bring the particular subject interest that brings me into this thing. Right. You open your, your whatever you're doing with the type on screen that says New York City 1971, I'm already in. Right. It literally doesn't matter yeah. what you're going to tell, what story yeah, yeah, you're yeah. telling me, I want to know. Yeah. All right. But besides that, let's just quickly talk about Simon and Pelicanos. Okay. Mm-hmm. So these guys created the corner. Start. Okay. Let's, I'm sorry. Let me go even Give these dudes the due respect to even back up a little right. bit farther than that. They both started out as newspaper writers. Uh, they both were covering, uh, initially, I, I think, police. Mm-hmm. And then in the process of covering police, end up covering the people the police are trying to police. Right. Right. And so they are, you know, the the advantage of being a newspaper reporter as opposed to strictly a television writer is that you actually have to go out and meet people. You can't just make them up in your head and write down whatever they would say. And so I think that that has led them to have a kind of empathy for characters that many other television writers don't have empathy for. Right. Right? Um, So they come out of that, and they start the corner. Uh, Simon starts the corner with Ed Burns, um, and he does, you know, he writes... He ends up uh, Homicide, right? Which was Mm -hmm. a show that, unfortunately, it's a hole in my... My Simon background. Right. Um, but they do the corner, and then from the corner, they end up doing the wire. And yeah, and that's where Pelicanos comes on with him. That's where Pelicanos um, comes Yeah, because he was... Um, he, he, his, his start was basically as a novelist, as a, as a crime novelist. Okay. For, out of D.C. Um, and, uh, and came on as one of this like incredible group of sort of crime and, and newspaper writers that Simon assembled for The Wire. Right. Um, for, but you're right. First, he did Homicide, which was initially a book that he wrote uh, based on his reporting in Baltimore, which was then uh, adapted into a television series. He was he was involved in that show, but not really... He was not like a showrunner. He was not a hands... Because he didn't know anything about television. He was a newspaper writer. He was a newspaper writer. Who wrote a book. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, you know, the interviews that I've read and when he's talked about it was very much a situation where he was... 
uh, lucky, he says, to be allowed to just sort of like come along for the ride and observe how a television show was made. Right. Uh, a great television show um, that I haven't seen all of. Like it's a, it's a, you know, it's a, it's net, a series, network right. television series that ran like seven seasons. It's, it's a, it's a lot to take in, but it's a, what, what I have seen of it is great. Right. Um, and then from that, he moves to... And I assume, sorry, mm-hmm. I assume what's great about it is the same thing that's great about his other stuff, which is the character development, which is the tension, mm-hmm. which is, you know... And which is also like an ear to the street. As, uh, someone who has actually gone out and met some people... And reported from Who he's from writing yeah, about, yeah, yeah, as totally. opposed to just making them up, or just taking in the official... Uh, the the official version, right? Mm-hmm. The authorities' version, not just right. police, but social workers or whoever else, but actually meeting the people they're talking about. Yep, this is a defining feature of his work that is pretty. I mean, pretty like even the cops we meet in the first episode of the Deuce are not authority level cops, right? Like, and they're not good guys, right? You know what I mean, necessarily, yeah. right? Yeah. So he, at least we see, we get the suggestion that they may have an underbelly, right? Right. Yeah. And that defines their work in yeah. a way that really, I think, is part of what makes all of this so exciting. Because if you're sure. going to do a show about the Deuce, you know, um, the fancy people weren't going there, right? Right. So yeah. if you're a person who reflexively uh, values the fancy people's opinion. Mm-hmm. Over the not so fancy people, then you're not gonna you're gonna fuck this show up. You're right. not gonna do it right. right. So yeah, so so they do The Wire, which runs sixty episodes on HBO, four uh, five seasons. I I am of the opinion that it's probably the finest dramatic television series, at least of our time. Second, um, no, I, as in I second that. Yeah, not yeah as yeah. in the second. <laughs> <laughs> I took no. That's how I took it. That's how I took it. Um, but you know. Even by HBO standards, a show that was low rated, that never really found its the kind of wide audience that something like The Sopranos did in the same period. Um, its five season run was really more a result of its critical mm-hmm. uh, embrace. Um, never really won any significant Emmys because the Emmys are fucking terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, so that show ends. Simon goes and does Generation Kill, which is a, a terrific uh, miniseries, a six six episode miniseries for HBO. Um, Pelicanus was not along for that one, mm-hmm. but then the next r- series series that he does for HBO is Treme, uh, and Pelicanus was one of the writers on that show. Um, that one ran for three seasons. Uh, this, the third one, kind of an abbreviated half season. They only did thirty six episodes of that. Um, I love Treme, dude. The the John Goodman story arc um, mm-hmm. in Treme is. Yeah. One of the greatest, yeah, is just really. I mean, I loved that show in general, and and it really, you know, it didn't have all of the ten, the dramatic tension that mm-hmm. The Wire carried, sure. but it had so much more place, so much more character, just like atmosphere, so yeah. much more of all of that stuff, you know, yeah. and and you kind of, I mean. You kind of have to do that, right? You're going to New Orleans, mm-hmm. and and you have to do that by not as not because whatever it's better or somehow than Baltimore, but because people no more people have kind of expectations around New Orleans, right? right? And and so 
again, this is somebody who's actually gone to the Ninth Ward and actually met some people in the neighborhood. And yeah. so he's not going to give you your expectations. Yeah. He's going to give you, you know, five minutes of your expectations in the first episode. But he's going to quickly explain to you how you got, to, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I really loved Treme. I think, you know, I still, I mean, I think The Wire generally... Whatever, if we're ranking, the, you know what I mean. Yeah, but but I think that's what's great about Tremaine is that he wasn't trying to. He talk wasn't the wire. right, right. He was like, he I'm not going to do another yes. like sociological, yes. political, deep dive exploration, epic American saga. Right. He's like, I'm going to go make a show about New Orleans and about people, and about people, and about how people are music up. and yeah, and, no, I've, and also about mourning. Oh, yeah. In a very particular way that oh, they do yeah. that the rest of us could learn from. Yeah. I felt like that was a thing that he went back mourning to. Mourning for people and mourning for culture and mourning for a city. And that, like, I just, I, you know. So now I think that you, I don't know. It, this seems like a great opportunity to kind of combine the things that were right. so good about right. those two shows. Yeah. And kind of bring them together into one. Yeah. No, I've said for, since it aired that. Treme is like the closest thing we're going to get to Altman's Nashville in this fucking lifetime. And all these idiots just slept on it because it wasn't the wire part two. Um, but I think that's one of the great things about it is that he wasn't doing the wire part two. Interesting pattern in his career is that then after Treme a couple of years ago, he did a terrific, another miniseries, another Mm -hmm. six episode miniseries called show me a hero, which is fantastic. Um, but I like that he's in this pattern where he does like a series and then a mini series and then a series and then a mini series. So now we're due for a series, <laughs> and we have the deuce brings which, us to the deuce. Which on and this is this time Simon and Pelicanos are co-creators. This is the first time Pelicanos has has originated the series with him instead of coming on as as a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to which uh, it's not to underplay the importance of that. No, like, that but... shapes the show and that. You know, he's and he's obviously was a terrific writer on on the wire and Tremay. But, but correct me if I'm wrong. But a lot of times when you're coming on as a writer, you're writing established characters. Yes. As opposed to coming on as a creator when yep. you are creating those characters. Exactly. And that is a significant difference, yep. right? Yeah. Yep. So this is the first time that they've had this particular version of that collaboration, mm-hmm. which is exciting. And there's been some interviews with Pelicanos that we'll put in the show notes that are, you know, of him just kind of talking about his motivation and what interested him Mm. that are really, you know, because obviously Simon gets more of the attention out of the two of them. Of course. Right. You know, for whatever reason. But like the Pelicanos interviews, when you can find them, are worth worth the time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So that brings us to... The Deuce! The pilot episode. Right? I feel like we just walked from uh, Wall Street. But we're here now. We're yeah. in Midtown. Yeah. All the, right. The 84 minutes <laughs> yes. Deuce pilot episode. And I, I, I love it when shows, when HBO shows do that. When they just basically do a movie as their pilot episode. Yep. Uh, the, the pilot episode of Vinyl was like far and away the best episode of that show. Because it was just like a Martin Scorsese movie. It was really good. <laughs> um, right. So yeah. So this is a, a, an extended episode directed by the great... The great Michelle McLaren. I like. I had forgotten that she was doing that, and I freaked out when that credit came up. Yeah, you're uh, fun to watch credits with. Like you know everybody's <laughs> name, so when you right. like them, you're like, yeah. oh god, this guy. Oh yeah. yes, McLaren. Yeah. No, she did. She did like eleven uh, key episodes of Breaking Bad. She's done Walking Dead. She's done four Game of Thrones. She's done Leftovers. Like she's like legit one of the great television directors. And you see in these shows, and it's a thing that doesn't get talked about a lot, because rightfully the, the showrunner ha- is, is, is deemed the auteur of a show 
uh, of a, you know, um, but the tone and style that's established by that pilot episode director is vitally important. Yeah. And I don't mean like television is the one medium where like the writer gets more credit than the director. And I'm not trying to like <laughs> shortchange that, but it's a, obviously a very careful choice. Like, uh, you know, they did high fives when they got Scorsese to do that vinyl pilot. Right. You know, they right. went for Michelle McLaren right. to do this episode. Right. Um, and also, by the way, just something to keep an eye out for. I see on the IMDb that she, um, she will be directing, uh, another episode later in the season. Okay. So, FYI, keep an eye out for that one. So we know that the show stars James Franco, who I don't care about at all. I think because I've mostly seen him in Seth Rogen movies, which are not a thing that leads me to like chase an actor. Right. I also don't, he doesn't hurt my feelings. Sure. I don't like run from the James Franco. I just that, nothing you may about be one of like that... seven people in America who don't have a strong opinion about James Franco. So <laughs> so congratulations on that. Well, you know, I I mean, he's I still he's like, fine. I still like most of the Kanye West records. So sure. whatever, you know, sure. I can separate things. Sure, but um, but yeah, I don't really particularly look out for him or uh, Gyllenhaal. I get, same thing. I don't have anything. I'm like. I don't mm-hmm. have anything against them by sure. any stretch of the imagination. I just don't necessarily look for them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, <clears throat> Method Man yeah. is in the show, yeah. uh, who I don't look for as an actor. <laughs> uh, that's for sure. But has done you a know? lot of Simon stuff. But has done a lot of his stuff. Yeah. And, and Clearly there's a rapport there. Very quick, very quick story. I promise I'll keep it very short. The first episode of The Wire I saw was the series finale. <laughs> That's so stupid. Because I know. Because so I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know. Oh, I didn't God. know. Yeah. And and so I watch it, and Method Man is in it, and I'm like, oh God, this shit. But then he was great, yeah. and it okay. So yeah. anyway, that's why I went back and watched the beginning. Yeah. Let's just talk very quickly about sure. the the oh, the beginning of The Wire and the beginning of Treme, <clears throat> which is that. This is an experience I found when I tell people The Wire is the best show ever made. Mm -hmm. And then they go and watch an episode and they're like, "What? this is not the best television show I've ever seen. And I'm saying, no, the first episode is not the greatest television you've ever seen. You need to, like, episode three is pretty amazing, right? But really it's one of those series things that it is about the development of the characters and yeah. their interactions. There's an accumulation that happens in his show. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, the editing and the pacing and those things are not necessarily built to to hold your dumb short attention span. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a, they're not standalone, you know, bottle-type episodes, which, you know, some of the great television shows have those, and some of them just don't. Uh, it's, it's a tired description, uh, but when I think of a better one, I'll use it instead. But, you know, his his shows are very much like books. Right. And each episode is a chapter. Right. You know, and you don't read a chapter as a standalone short story. And decide the book sucks. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, but every every chapter is leading to something. And every chapter is building on something and building to something. And that, I think, is 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 very much a key to to all the work he does. Right. And having the patience yep. and the respect for these people and yep. the shit they've done before <laughs> to give them give, a little while. Give them the benefit of the you know? doubt, for yeah. God's sake. Yeah. To give them sure. a little while. Sure. So, all right. So here we go. Episode one. What'd you think? Did you like it? I, I liked it. <laughs> one th- okay. That so- concludes our first episode. <laughs> no. Um, here's what I like about it, which I didn't expect. It's, as we mentioned, 84 minutes long. And unless I missed it, there was not even a mention of pornography. 
Correct. In a show that we've been told Correct. is about pornography. Correct. Um, the idea, first of all, of Instead having there's the, like some chick in an econ class. We're gonna that's gonna come <laughs> up. But that confused the hell out yeah. of me. Yeah. Um, but the kind of you know again granting that leeway and the the, uh, the viewer having the patience to allow that we'll get to that mm-hmm. and the writers slash creators saying. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But the idea that this episode is, we're seeing the ingredients, you right. know, that we're, we're, we're lining up the dominoes and we're making introductions and we're seeing th- all of the elements that are going to come into play to create the 70s porn scene in New York, which are prostitution, mm-hmm. 42nd Street, the deuce, mm-hmm. organized crime, yep. crime in general. Yep. Drugs, <laughs> and most of all, like desperation. Like right. these are this is the recipe that you take to make that souffle. Right. Um, right. But in the first episode, he's just showing us the ingredient list. Yep. And I think that's really smart. I think that's really compelling. I think there are people who are going to watch this show for porn and are going to not understand what's happening when there's. More dicks than tits. Anyway, yes, go ahead. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, so that I mean, that's that's the sort of general big big picture overview of the first episode. I think I think it's really promising. I think I like the the that approach. I like the characters that we're meeting. I think the the performances are like really interesting, um, and there it's full as his work always is. Of just these these little tiny moments, these mm-hmm. little human touches that are what make it more than a show about something, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and and I like that he is aware that we're aware of the sort of common narratives that surround this story. Okay. And is and it seems to me we're gonna have a fairly even split of following those narratives and turning them on their heads. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in the, in the, the example, in the first, I would place the journey that we're seeing uh, Vinny on mm-hmm. the idea of like, <laughs> like really, if there is a, a, a criticism to make, it's sort of how he's stacking the deck so that right. we're sympathetic to Vinny. Right. You know, right. that how, how much bad luck is going to befall this poor dude. Right. Um, so, and so clearly we're seeing the setup here for like, this is a guy who is down on his luck. He's, you know, he's, his marriage is in shambles. He's going to lose his kids. He's broke. He owes money. He, his brother owes a lot of money. Um, these are all of the sort of pieces to put into place. And, but, but we see at the end of the episode, he is an entrepreneur and an innovator. And so clearly this is a guy who's going to become a successful pornographer and who will do it because he has no other choice because he <laughs> has to, he has all these bills to pay and his life is falling apart and he needs quick cash and blah, 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 blah. That's a story we've heard and been told. Right. And you can turn that story on its head if you want to, and he chooses not to, and that's fine. Right. One thing that really struck me when I was, I, I did my best to reread the other Hollywood before starting the show. And I didn't, I, I got read a lot of it, re, re, <laughs> reread a lot of it. I think this would be my third read, but I did want to refresh because I'm sure there will be certain analogs. Of course. Um, but one thing that, that I think is important to note that there are a fair number of, of, of people, of, of porn actors and actresses who they talk to in that book 
who say, I did this because it was fun. Mm-hmm. I liked to fuck. Yep. I liked to fuck four people. That turned me on. Right. I liked the money. Right. I liked the drugs that were on the sets. Right. I had a good time making porn. Or I did initially. Right. Usually it's I did initially. <laughs> there aren't a lot of people who had a through and through great experience making porn. But the idea, I think it's, I think the, the only sort of questionable thing that we're seeing being set up, and I guess the only thing that sort of is, bears the earmarks of making a piece of mass entertainment about fringe art. Right. Is the idea that we have to see that all of these people only did this because they were so desperate. (laughs) Um, And I'm interested to see, and maybe there will turn out to be characters who aren't that way. I think Gloria from Minnesota could turn out to be that way. Gloria from Minnesota. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. The only thing, the only other thing I wanted to say was that Gloria from Minnesota is a great example of taking a traditional narrative and turning it inside out. Mm-hmm. That she comes down the escalator at Port Authority, she may as well have a target on her chest, he yes. goes in for the kill, we're like, I know this story, the girl straight off the bus who wants to be an actress and becomes, you know, a porn uh, star. Right, right. And then and when they get into the car, and she's, oh, I even wrote down the line, it was so good. <laughs> um... Uh, da, 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 da. Maybe I didn't I'm write the from line. Minnesota, and I wouldn't I, wear half this shit. Ain't no need for the rest of the sales pitch, is there? Right. His response. Right. That's cool. That's a great like. Right. We, you know, we thought we had it, and Simon and Pelicano saying you didn't have it. Right. Well, and that the the scene with this is I mentioned before. The girl in the econ class confused mm-hmm. the hell out of me. Right. Because what are we doing here? But it seems fairly clear by the, t- or I don't know, at least it's potentially possible that when she's walking out on her, on her, you know, uh, test that she decides she's not going to take, right. that she could become the person who had an other options. Right. But decided yeah. she was having a lot of fun. We see yeah. her fucking her teacher, you know yeah. what I mean? So she's, what, okay. Yeah. You know. Um, that she enjoys yielding her considerable potent sexuality that's correct and so now and in a moment where the wave of feminism where we were on was starting to arrive at the idea of not being ashamed of that right and that feeds into some of the thinking of some of the actresses who you read about right and that is both true and good and an advancement for in society and something that is available to people like Cece and and uh, right. What's the other pimp's name? Right. So this is a, yeah. a perspective that is available to people who may want to take advantage of it. Right. And right? yeah, and that they're not and 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 that refreshingly and in a thread that I would imagine will reappear more explicitly that they're also going to acknowledge the flip of that by mm-hmm. having that same character talking to James Franco, not even about porn, but about the, you know, the leotards right. say, uh, ever wonder what, what it's like for them to be objectified. Right. So like that's, that is two writers very carefully starting to open a can of worms. Well, this is really interesting too, because they are not unaware of the criticisms about Game of Thrones, right? right. Which you don't watch. And I've heard you refer to as a dragons and fucking show, which is hilarious. <laughs> that's what you pick and- up from Twitter, Mike. That's, that's what I've gathered. <laughs> which is hilarious and accurate, right? <laughs> yeah. And also, you know, obviously like it's like saying fucking Mad Men is about commercials, of course. you know, right? Of and course. you know that. 
that, of course, right? Of course. But there is also some truth to it. But regardless of that, it is the perspective mm-hmm. on that show that is that you do pick up if you're following it only on Twitter. And yeah. there is no fucking scenario on earth in which Simon and Pelicanos are unaware yeah. of the way that Game of Thrones has been talked about, right? Yeah. Both in terms of female representation, in terms of the representation of sexuality, yep. in terms of it took them like five seasons to show a dick, right. you know, and like... And in terms of the narrative exploitation yes. of sexual assault. Yes. That, that yes, that is a, a very professional way to say it. And yeah. that particular element, they started showing some dicks, but that part hasn't gone away. <laughs> right? So I hear from, so, the, from the think pieces. That's right. Yeah. And there's no way that they are unaware of yeah. that. But, but not only are, so not only do they have that sort of to react to, mm-hmm. right? But there is another side of this, which is that, you know, and this is a part of the conversation I had with April Rain about no Confederate. It's never really been clear in the Game of Thrones fan community whether the showrunners of Game of Thrones are bad at dealing with race mm-hmm. or whether George, the writer of the book right. series, is bad at dealing with race. Right. Because the show is pretty honest in terms of its representation of how race works in the book. Right. Right. But this is something else we know from their previous work is that those guys deal with race, not from a sympathetic place. Mm-hmm. Right from a fucking honest place, right. from a legitimate literal place, from a place right. that suggests they may have people of color on staff. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. Like, and, and I'm sorry because I'm going to sound like a schmuck now, uh, but one of those guys is the guy who adapted 25th Hour for Spike, right? I believe so. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So, and as well as they have Richard Price's writing on the thing, mm-hmm. right? Who did Clockers and right. he's done a bunch. So, so just by the nature of who they are and their experience, they approach this. Conversation conversation differently than George Martin and sure. certainly differently than the show and that is something that I was that I'm actually really excited about is to see them mm-hmm. you know and in fact they kind of it's fascinating to open the you know the first time you hear the pimps talking right. they're talking about politics yeah they're talking about the Vietnam yes. War right they're talking about Nixon is like not necessarily making bad decisions and when yeah. you hear in representations of political conversation of that era the only people who are in any way standing up for mm-hmm. Richard Nixon is literally like the head of of you know oil companies yeah. or right you never our see whitest Americans every now yeah. and then you'll get an Archie Bunker character yep. who's a working class guy, but yep. the idea that you open the pimp thing. Or, I will, I, this is a footnote that's important to note, James Brown was a Nixon man, <laughs> that's and true. the next time we see those guys, there's a James Brown record playing in the background. I don't know. No, the, 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 the this ref- is why I wanted to do this podcast with Jason fucking <laughs> Bailey. That the, right there, people. The refrain we may end up going back to a lot in this show is that with these guys, nothing is accidental. Yes. So yes. the other the other sort of with, with the these, way they use music for yeah. fuck's sake. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And the other sort of in this in this with these guys, nothing is accidental. Uh, I'm sorry. I didn't I don't mean to switch a topic. Nope. Uh, is in the use of marquees on the deuce okay. was a thing that we made particular <laughs> note of the idea that they that those marquees run the gamut from the conformist, which is 
like no filmmaker worth their salt isn't influenced by the conformist and we'll, we'll miss an opportunity for a conformist shout out to Mondo <laughs> Trasho on the right. next one over. You know what I mean? Right. But the other right. thing that, that, that cued the nothing is accidental moment that I thought was so great was that there's another, I don't think in that first scene where you see the marquees, but the later one when Gloria shows up, as she's walking, you see behind her a marquee for Get Carter. Uh-huh. Okay, now all uh-huh. of these are accurate time-wise, and these are nineteen. These are movies that would have been in current release slash you know second-run houses in right. nineteen seventy-one. But the reason I love Get Carter being there is that Get Carter is the main movie you see on the marquees on the Deuce in the opening credit sequence of Shaft. That iconic opening <laughs> credit sequence in Shaft. Yes. Like, there's no way Simon and Pelicanos are not aware that, like, that's in bo- on both of those not marquees. Not I think that's a beautiful, tiny yep. period touch. So okay. one other really interesting thing that is obviously not an accident is that conversation where he's talking about you dropping a nuclear bomb. Mm-hmm. And he says, I'm not saying I'm going to do it, yeah. but you got to make them think that you will. Yep. It's like cutting a bitch, right? Right. Like, you really going to do it? Right. No. But you want her to think you will. Yeah. And that, and I, and you, we should say, lone among these eight, Mike watched this one ahead of me, and then we watched it again together. Yes. So this. Mike said, make a note of that line. And I'm like, why is that important? <laughs> and then obviously, uh, by, uh, in the final scene of the episode, it became very clear why that was important. Yeah. And and yeah. you know and I'm watching it right. I they they released episode one on HBO Go and yeah. I watched it like I mean I was literally refreshing HBO Go waiting for it. To <laughs> like, I couldn't. So yeah. I did watch that one. So I have actually seen this episode twice, but I haven't seen any of the other ones. Yeah. Um. And I watched it with my wife Morgan, and and at one point in the episode, she said like. When do the pimps go bad? Yeah. You know it is it is like a shoe you're waiting to drop. Right. Yeah. And that, you know, and and so when it and I'm just kind of wondering too because that's a part of treating your non-white characters as fully developed characters, yeah. right? Is it's not like the pimps just got the fancy clothes right. and the crooked hats, but these guys have varied emotional levels, which is right. like and I hate to like be saying this shit this yeah, way, yeah, yeah. but it's not something you can expect. Right in every in every television show for that character, regardless of race or that race, regardless of character. Right, right. And, you know, so to have and also that- to you have to be very careful to that. Also, when you're two white writers creating a show with these characters, that they're not being crafted solely as menacing uh, woman beaters. Right, you know. It's it's a very fine needle to thread. But I and I but and but threading it is I think is useful, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think they're doing it alone. No. You know what I mean? And I think that that is, this is, I am interested to to kind of see how this yeah. aspect of it plays out in a fan community because it's been so much a part of the Game of Thrones conversation. Yeah. And you can ignore it in Game of Thrones if you want. I just choose not to. Sure. That, that conversation, sure. you know. But I think that it'll be interesting to see how it plays out here because of, also because, this this show doesn't happen in Westeros. It happens right. in New York City. Like we're like two miles time. from Forty yeah, Second yeah. Street right yeah. now, having this conversation, right? Yeah. And that changes things totally as well. Yeah. So, um, 
so obviously we're not really doing like a recap show. No. You know, if you didn't watch the episode yet, I don't really know what you're listening to. It for. <laughs> uh, go back and watch it. It was yeah. great. We probably and should have put the recommendation right sense. up top I guess and this true. footnote. But now, now true. we know. Um, we're learning it as we're doing it. And, you know, the other thing is it's very there's not a whole lot for us to kind of speculate on or, or mm-hmm. you know, tie, you know, tie loose we ends just or met anything at this point. We, we just, just met them. And, yeah. in a, you know, and as we said before, you got to give these guys time to yeah. introduce everybody and, and let things develop and figure out what's going on. Yeah. The John Goodman arc in Treme, which, you know, I did not. I it was 80 percent done by the time Mm -hmm. i had any inkling of what was going on right right? and that was more than one episode long you know and so just kind of based on examples like that based on you know i i doubt that they would are going to structure it the way the wire was where you had one season focus on this element or a season there's certainly no indication of that so far and i can't imagine because we did we saw we saw all of i think all of the important elements at least made an appearance right um, frankly, I, that's, I think the only reason that we have the scene where Franco has to stay late at the bar because there's the table of, of, of mobbed up guys there Yep, is just like, this will be, and there was a huge, that is a big takeaway from the other Hollywood is these, they were the organized crime was a huge part of the financing and the, um, uh, profit mm-hmm. of, uh, at least that those early days of porn, particularly in New York. And the way that works is through enforcement. Yeah. Right? And so, you know, the enforcement, you would think, is going to become... Is going to become a significant element of this thing. Yeah, totally. Totally. Um, I did want to talk real briefly before we wrap up about James Franco, who we... like. I I want to know what you think about, you know, him and Gyllenhaal also. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, you're much more kind of... um, You've seen more of their work, but also you're more conscious of their kind of place in the industry yeah and pointed out that he has an executive producer title she has a producer title yeah and those two things are not the same not the same yeah um no i mean there's been a fair amount of of she's given a fair amount of interviews and there's been a fair amount of writing about her making you know making a decision and she you know the occasional dark night aside she has not had a traditional Hollywood trajectory like Mm -hmm. it is not you know she started out in independent films and has mostly lived in that world Mm -hmm. um I I like her 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 work very much I think she's really gifted and always making choices in terms of the films she's making and the way she's playing characters in them that I think are refreshing and challenging um but there's been a she's talked a fair amount about sort of reaching this age that she's at now the sort of end of the ingenue Mm -hmm. phase Mm -hmm. where actresses go to die Mm -hmm. because filmmakers and television makers don't know what the fuck to do with them there's no stories to tell about 38 year old women that they don't have not as long as there aren't more women telling stories right right so making a very deliberate decision when she sort of felt that happening that like i'm going to go make projects happen and i'm going to be an active creator producer force in making sure there are roles for me to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a big part of what was happening with the series. Oh, fuck, I'm the worst. I didn't watch it, but she had a series uh, that was on a year or two ago that was very well received that she was the lead in that she had like, that existed because she wanted to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the produced by credit 
in that opening credits for Maggie Gyllenhaal is very interesting because you do get the feeling like executive producer James Franco, how, you know, I'm sure he made some calls. I'm sure he lent a hand when he could, <laughs> but executive producer does not usually indicate a really active level of participation. Right. The way that produced by does. Right. Um, so yeah, it's a really, I think we're seeing a lot of, we're, you know, it's, it's the beginning of a performance, but it's the beginning of a performance that has a lot going on. Um, and I'm excited to see where she's going with this character. And the idea of, maybe more than anyone, she has those sorts of, again, the roads well-traveled uh, mm -hmm. to contend with. The, there is no bigger cliche than the whore with a heart of gold. <laughs> in television and, like and the film. sun, you know, the yeah, four-year-old yeah, in Queens. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, there's a lot of well-trod ground of that character. But she's also an actor who can easily... She's an actor who can transcend those tropes, and these are writers who can as well. Right. And not just Simon and Pelicanos. I noted Richard Price also had an executive producer credit, which means he'll be writing some. Right. Uh, and he wrote for The Wire, uh, and this is only the second Simon show that he's he's written for, but he wrote a lot of the, the best episodes of The Wire, in addition to some tremendous books and films, and if you don't know who Richard Price is, you should. Yeah, um, and her scene just, her scene between that kid's knees is like, I'm, um, because I'm going to watch whatever else you got coming. Yes, because that is so like, good. the scene, the, 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 the turns of that scene of you think you know where you're going and then it's not, and then maybe it sort of is, but the monologue about his dad, the car dealer, that is, mwah, <laughs> that is just, that is so good. And that's such a, you know, and, and the idea that, you know, it, she, she sees it as work. Right. And she sees it as uh, business, and she sees it as work that is being done to an end. And part of her job is to say, we're going to party. Right. And then you see what that party looked like. Exactly. exactly. So you wanted to talk about James Franco. Just and briefly. And I was like, no, no, no. No, James... let's talk about her instead. No, that's fine. Franco, I th uh, you know, is an actor who I go back and forth on. I think... In sort of serious dramatic roles, there's no one who puts me to sleep faster. Mm -hmm. um, in those Spider-Man movies, like, I just want to jump out a window whenever he's on screen. But I think he's engaging in those Seth Rogen movies. I think when he doesn't take himself seriously, there's mm -hmm. a lot going on there. I think the way in which he has used his celebrity to, uh, to, to do work that benefits from it that might not get done otherwise is really admirable. I think yep. the way that he has uh, sort of examined celebrity is sometimes really obnoxious and uh, uh, self-indulgent and sometimes results in some very compelling work. Um, and I and I wasn't surprised to see him in this mm -hmm. because he is an actor who's interested in sex on film. There's a movie, oh God, I'm coming like armed with nothing. Like you've talked about, <laughs> you know, how I know all the movies and I was, and I keep like blanking on the names of shit. Well, first of all, he appeared in, in Lovelace. Oh uh, yeah. Which is, which is not a good oh, movie yeah. at all. A, a really bad um, biopic of uh, Linda Lovelace as Hugh Hefner. There's a film that he made that's about the making of Cruising the Friedkin okay. Al Pacino movie that's like a sort of like film within a film of where like it's that's about James Franco 
producing and, and appearing in a reenactment of like the 50 minutes of hardcore gay sex that was supposedly shot but not included in Cruising. Oh, It's a wild movie. Whoa. It's called Interior Leather Bar. It came out in 2013. Okay. It shouldn't work. He's done some other sort of self-indulgent, like I am a movie star and these are my thoughts on stardom that are fucking insufferable. But Interior Leather Bar is really interesting and is a lot about him as James Franco, who at the time this movie was made had been cast in the, you know, the lead in the wonder in, you know, their Wizard of Oz movie. Yeah. Uh, being the kind of person who can simultaneously go make this like movie about gay sex. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm, uh, he's he's a, a he's sometimes more a compelling figure than he is an engaging on-screen presence but i think he's very good in the show i think he's creating two distinct characters without doing any of the really easy things you can do for that yeah you really see it in the scene where they're together yep. that just it's not it's not about an accent or a voice or even a physical description it's about a way of approaching things mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that one of them has the weight of the world on his shoulders and one of them doesn't. Right. Um, and also I'm just like, I'm super impressed always by dual, you know, it's not split screen anymore, but like two actors in the same, the same actor in the same frame as two different characters. The technology is sort of astonishing now. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I say this as someone whose four-year-old has had the original parent trap on a loop <laughs> over the past couple of months, where like you can literally see the line, the line. where you know. Um, but especially the first scene that they're in together, where like he comes up into the bar and you see him through the glass door, and the camera moves, and he comes here, and this guy goes here, and then they're in mirrors. It's like seamless. It's seamless and sort yeah. and a little showy. I got to be honest. Like, I mean, yeah. a little bit. They're like, hey, look, see, seamless, seamless. <laughs> Can't see that line like in the Parent Trap, but um, but yeah, like I say, I I'll be interested to see where he goes with the character, especially the character we're rooting for. Yeah. Um, and to see if the, the first thing I think a lot of people who know anything about the Golden Age of Porn thought when they heard that James Franco had been cast as brothers was of the Mitchell brothers. Right. Um, but that is not the case. But that's not the case. Right. The Mitchell brothers were out of San Francisco, and they weren't twins. But you know, their story well, his had a character is based on a real person. Did it you is. This? I didn't know. This. Okay, I'm so... sorry. See, I'm supposed to be the fucking expert. No, I, I'm, <laughs> I missed that entirely. I've had a little more time to read some of the lead-up okay. articles and interviews, okay. but there was there's one particular guy that they that they were introduced to very early when mm -hmm. before they knew they were going to do this. Mm -hmm. This guy was the original inspiration apparently for the show. Okay. And and he was a twin. And apparently a lot of the Vinny and Frankie story traces his story. Okay. Right? And and from what I understand, they took not so much like the, you know, the the story, yeah. what's going to happen to the characters, but they yeah. got a lot of tone from this guy. Yeah. They got a lot of feel from this guy, sure. right? Well, he's dead now. Well, he, he passed away between whatever, mm -hmm. you know, breakfast they had and, and right. you know, but a lot of the stories about Vinny and Frankie are based on him. And that was, for me, the moment where I was like, okay, I'm going to let you have this one then. Yeah, because yeah. when I hear actors playing twins, I gimmick, I don't, yeah. like, I just walk <laughs> sure. straight away. Sure. Like, I don't, and partially when I hear Franco's playing twins, I'm going to walk because of what you said. I know he's experimental. Right. Right. And I don't want to take that away from him. I'm not going to get on Twitter and shit 
shit on him. I'm just not going to participate yeah. <laughs> in his sure. experimenting around a gimmick. Sure. Right? Understood. But then when I read, I believe it was Simon talking about this, you know, this guy that they met who was the inspiration for Vinny and Frankie and him. To, right? Then when I'm reading that, I'm like, all right. Yeah. Well, then, so you kind of got to do that. Yeah. It's not a gimmick. Yeah. You fucked it up if you didn't do that. Right. Like, if this guy's giving you all the juice, right? Yeah. You know, so so that really made me kind of look at it from a different perspective. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I felt Franco did great. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, when we meet the second twin, yeah. when we meet Frankie, right? Yeah. You know? I liked your thing about the, the, the head wound. Well, I th- I don't really see why they open the sh- the scene with or the whole thing with Franco getting a uh, gun to the head, other than so they can put a bandage on his forehead for the first episode at least. So we know so we can tell the apart. two guys right. apart. Yeah. You know, yeah. one of them's got a bandage, one of them doesn't. Yeah. And but when we see him, like you were saying, like you know, not only is he much looser because even though he's the cause of all the problems, he doesn't have any of the weight of them. Right. Right. But his face is much more expressive. Yeah. He's a much bigger, yeah. you know, facial movements you know than who, the other characters. Yeah. The dynamic between them, and I, I again, nothing is an accident. Uh, the the dynamic between them in that scene reminds me very much of that first scene between Keitel and De Niro in uh, Mean Streets. <laughs> yep. The guy who's like, I'm trying to solve your problems. And he's like, what problems? Wee! You know. Uh, oh, that guy? Oh, Saturday? Oh, wow. You know. Uh, it's a very similar back and forth happening between the two of them, but the same actor gets to play them both. So good for him. Right. And, and you know, whatever I have to say about him, he, yeah. it was, he did it for me. Yep. So... Uh, do we have anything else or should we wrap up episode one? I have said everything I think that I have to say. All right. And I'm ready to go watch another one. Yeah, well, that's a wonderful thing about uh, getting those preview copies, right? Yeah, you don't got to yeah, wait yeah. a week. Yeah. All right. Uh, this has been the Deuce Rethread on DVR. This has been great. Uh, we will have more plot points to talk about next uh, episode, I'm sure. Yeah. But uh, join us after each episode. We will be posting our podcast as the episode is ending on hbo so as soon as you see it if you're not just doing an immediate rewatch we will be available to talk about it yes. so we'll we'll rethread there you go the oh, real with God, you you're so good at podcasting oh, already oh, damn no, it no 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 jason bailey thank right. you very much brother thanks mike all right thank you for listening to the deuce on the dvr podcast network You can check us out at dvrpodcast.com or on Twitter at dvrpodcast. You can email Mike and Jason at thedeucedvr at gmail.com or follow them on Twitter at thedeucedvr.